Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Like Shakespeare said, to raise the debt limit or not raise the debt limit, that is the question. Republicans and Democrats acknowledge that if the limit is not raised, it could have severe consequences for our economy. But why hasn't it happened? Economist Wendy Edelberg will stop by to give us the insight on why this is such a struggle for a question that seems simple to so many. Then, legislation covering distracted driving is going through Michigan right now. We'll talk to Colin Jackson about it. That's next on NPR Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. The question of the debt limit has been on the mind of many in America today as we approach and have surpassed the need to raise that number. With the risk of default on the horizon, many Americans are wondering to raise the debt limit, to not raise the debt limit. That's the prevailing question. But both Republicans and Democrats acknowledge that if the debt limit is not raised, it will have severe consequences for our economy. They just disagree about what needs to be done before raising it. Many Republicans say that American spending has been too risky and that Congress needs to find ways to cut our spending habits before raising the debt limit. Many Democrats don't believe this is true. And they think that if the debt limit isn't raised, it will unleash havoc on our economy. So what should they do? How often have we been in this place of potentially defaulting on our debt? And what would defaulting mean for us now? And broadly, how should we be thinking about this entire scenario? To talk about this, we have Wendy Edelberg here with us. Wendy is the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute. She previously served as the chief economist at the Congressional Budget Office also, and we always appreciate her insight on the show. Wendy, welcome back to Detroit Today. Very happy to be here. Well, let's just start off with the basics. We've been over it before, but sometimes we can forget or get confused. What is the debt ceiling? How does it work? What does it mean for us generally? Yeah, great question. Uh, because it's something that uh, we shouldn't have to worry about. So the fact that it's, you know, new to people is, you know, means that this isn't, you know, this is something that has just been pro forma in the past. So let's start with the, 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 the basic point that because of laws on the books, because of things that the federal government has done on the, you know, to, to, to benefit U.S. taxpayers in the past, U.S. taxpayers owe people money. We owe interest to those who have lent to the U.S. by purchasing treasuries. We owe doctors and hospitals who have treated Medicare and Medicaid patients. We owe federal workers who have done work on our behalf or owed paychecks. And the federal government owes people who are entitled to benefits, such as Social Security. And day in and day out, Treasury makes those payments, and it makes them out of a checking account uh, that is, filled up with money from revenues that come in uh, when we pay our taxes. And when that's not enough, uh, what Treasury will do is it will expand the, you know, the, the amount of, of federal debt that's out there. It will borrow from people, and that will help make up the deficit to help it pay its bills. And since January, Treasury has not been allowed to increase the total amount of federal debt that's out there. But it's been able to pay its bills, even even though revenues haven't been enough, uh, by moving some money around. Um, The term is called extraordinary measures. But what's going to happen, perhaps as early as June, is that Treasury will run out of its ability to move money around, and the debt ceiling will bind, and there simply won't be enough money in Treasury's bank account to pay all the bills that are owed because of past things that Congress has decided 
that Treasury should pay for. So if we have a situation now where we have this debt ceiling and Congress has already allotted money to be spent, but also has a limit on how much debt we can have, why was the debt ceiling even created in the first place? It would seem to run against the idea that, hey, we've made obligations. How can you make obligations that you won't guarantee as a government you'll pay for in the future? Yeah, there are basically three, there are three things that are on the books and they're in law. Uh, there are laws that determine federal spending and revenues. There's something in the Constitution that says to Treasury that it, it has to pay the debt and it's not allowed to default. And then we have a third thing of the debt ceiling that says, no, 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 you're not allowed to borrow more if you hit the debt ceiling and we haven't raised it. And in essence, those three things are incompatible. Uh, so, you know, the, there's some historical reasons why we have a debt ceiling that are sort of interesting. Um, it used to be that, like in the, you know, the 1800s and the very early 1900s, that every time uh, pressure, so the way the Constitution's written, it kind of sounds like the ability to borrow is, uh, is helped with Congress. And so Congress was essentially directing Treasury to borrow on behalf of Congress. And so every time Treasury went out and increased the amount of federal debt that was out there, it had to get permission from Congress. And this was, you know, this was a clunky system. And so in the early 1900s, Congress said, let's just be more efficient about this. And we're going to say, you're allowed to borrow up until this really high amount. Just stop coming back to us nastiness each time. And and that basically worked in a pro forma way. And then there were about 20 years there where we had particularly good policy where there was a, a rule on the books called the Gephardt rule that said, you know what, if Congress passes spending and, and revenue policy and that requires Treasury to borrow to pay the bills, they're just allowed to do that. But then, you know, um, uh, Congress decided it didn't like that rule, and so it went into the days of, you know, the past several decades where this has become a fight. It's a time when the policy out, the, the, the party out of power feels like it has a little bit of leverage, um, and so it's been a time for negotiations. But what's happening now is a lot more frightening to me than the negotiations in, in, in previous decades. Yeah, it would seem like that because we have uh, now a situation where I'm seeing folks going far more up to that deadline. I mean, we've seen it once before in the past, I remember about a decade ago. But while we've seen Republicans do that recently in times, is there any history of Democrats in the past using the debt ceiling or the debt limit for negotiations as well? They have absolutely, the Democrats have, when the Democrats have been, you know, in the minority, they have definitely used it as leverage. This has been a bipartisan thing. Um, You know, more to look, if you want us to, if you want us to help you do this, you're going to have to give us something. Otherwise, you guys are on your own. Uh, The negotiations have more taken on that flavor. But what's more worrying to me this time around, uh, it's not just, that the, that the Republicans are playing such hardball. Like that's that's kind of run-of-the-mill politics. It's that there are a bunch of there are a bunch of in this case Republicans um, who who seem to have already like they they're gunning for the debt ceiling to buy. Yeah, they have already prepared their talking points for after the debt ceiling binds and you know we haven't talked about what happens when it does indeed bind but it'll be bad and they have already prepared their talking points for when that eventuality comes uh which suggests to me like for at least some people uh in washington dc working on behalf of u.s taxpayers like this is the outcome that they are that they are gunning for and 
that's alarming. Yeah, it's one thing to use brinksmanship for negotiation. It's another thing to think that's a desired outcome, which would put us in a little bit of rarefied space right now as we are speaking with Wendy Edelberg here on 101.9 WDET in Detroit today. She's the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institute. But we also want to speak with you, as I know this conversation this uh, issue doesn't come up that often. It can be fairly complex, but it can also have tremendous ramifications for us. That's why we want to know from you listening right now. What do you make of the fights over the debt ceiling? Do you think we should raise the debt limit? And what do you think are the consequences of not doing shit? So, and do you think Republicans are right that Democrats have been irresponsibly spending and need to restructure things around uh, their spending before we raise the debt limit? Or should the debt limit just be off the table for negotiations in the first place? I mean, as Wendy will tell you, they're two separate things. The debt limit on what we... uh, what we have already spent, just being able to cover our bills versus future spending, which is something totally separate. But we'd want to hear from you. Give us a call. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. I want to get into calls right now as we have Brian in Ypsilanti. Brian, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Oh, hey, thank you. I've got two uh, two quick questions, which I'll ask, and then I'll uh, take the answers off the air. Um, so the first one is, is this just a U.S. problem? Uh, in other words, like, do other countries owe us money? Um, have they ever defaulted on their payments? What is the impact on our economy when that happens? And two is when we've had periods of surplus, like in the Clinton era, where we supposedly had this big surplus and we, you know, we'd balance our budget. Did we use any of that surplus to, you know, pay down our, our obligations, or did we just use that for other things and still rack up more debt? Too fast. Uh, no, Brian, thank you so much. Those are two fascinating questions, and I present them to you, Wendy. There have certainly been other countries that have defaulted on their debt, um, but uh, we're talking about, like, you know, countries in South America come to mind. They're, you know, it's pretty common, but these are not countries that we really want to be on the, on, we don't want to be on that list. Um, and, uh, if we were to actually, if Treasury were to actually get to the point where it truly couldn't make principal and interest payments, and there was no way to interpret what they were doing other than defaulting on Treasury securities, that would be cataclysmic for U.S. financial markets, for global financial markets. I think it would pretty fundamentally change uh, the the role that U.S. Treasuries play in the global financial system. I mean, the Treasury securities are arguably the most important financial instrument in the entire global financial system. And the U.S. government, or we as taxpayers, we as people living in the United States, we get a massive benefit from the fact that everybody wants to lend to us and everybody wants to hold dollars. If we were to actually default and not make a principal and interest payment and, you know, be look like basically a rogue nation, uh, that would change. And we would take a massive financial hit from that. To say nothing for the fact of what it would do to the economy in the near term, what it would do to the global system in the near term. Uh, so, um, yes, other countries have done this, not countries that, that we want to be associated with on this front. Um, and then the... I think the, what was the other question? The other question was about the Clinton surplus that we had during that oh, time. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, that's right. So, so yes, absolutely. I mean, there was a time, there was a brief time when uh, we were, you know, economists and, you know, people in looking at financial markets were, were like contemplating what happens when the, the stock of treasuries gets smaller and smaller out there because, you know, as I said, Treasury securities are a really important part. They are the grease in the in the global financial, you know, in the wheels of the global financial system. So it, there was a time when we were actually doing some hand wringing of like, well, what happens when Treasury just stops issuing Treasury securities, you know, or increasing the the supply of them? So yeah, there was that. That was definitely. It looked like it was in the cards. Um, and then we decided to go a different direction with, you know, tax cuts and increases in spending and, you know, and various other unexpected things that happened to the U.S. economy that then led to where we are today, which is 
uh, uh, you know, moderately sized deficits, and we are spending in excess of our revenues, which let me just throw a flag out and say spending more than our revenues and having a deficit, there's nothing, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that uh, for a lot of reasons. But that is most assuredly the position that we're in, and it requires an increase in federal borrowing uh, year after year. Right. And when we return with you, Wendy, we're going to take a look at possible solutions that the sides could have, why they're having such an issue, Democrats and Republicans in the House, and just uh, raising the debt limit and what the default might look like for us here in Detroit and in the country if we don't uh, step off the gas and raise that debt ceiling. We'll continue with you on Detroit Today in just a moment here on 1019 WDET. WDET provides trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station. It's Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson and we're speaking about the debt ceiling with Wendy Edelberg, the director of the Hamilton Project and a senior fellow in economic studies and one of my favorite people to talk about issues of uh, budgeting, congressional budget, congressional budget office, as well as the economy. We're also talking to you about the debt ceiling, and you can get involved with the conversation. 313-577-1019. Again, it's 313-577-1019. Before we get to calls and more questions, we do have some comments from Twitter, including Dragon Lake. RN, a nurse. Republicans only conveniently care about spending when Democrats are in power. Ironic because Dems have a record of reducing the deficit. It's 100% Mitch McConnell weaponizing, weaponization of legislative protocol, brinksmanship, holding everyone hostage. A uh, very interesting point there as Mitch McConnell has used legislative protocol and maybe his friends over in the congressional side in the House are also uh, using that now to their advantage. Moving on to freedom to be on Twitter. Abolish debt limits. I'm tired of Republicans damaging our economy by playing roulette with our good faith and credit. A note that if it was uh, or if there it a note that it was their unfunded spending especially on tax breaks for the rich that added the most to the debt. So I give that question to you, Wendy, as we talk about this. What would it take to just eliminate and abolish debt limits? What would it take for Congress to do that? Oh, it would be as simple as passing a law. Um, But, uh, you know, one thing that we haven't talked about is what actually would happen on this day when Treasury doesn't have enough money in, in, in the bank account to pay an entire day's worth of bills. So I want to make this concrete Please. for the listeners yes. um, so that it doesn't just sound, I don't know, like, like uh, I don't know, uh, so it doesn't sound so esoteric. So what's widely, so, so the short answer is we don't really know because Treasury has never been in this position. But what's widely expected is that if they didn't have enough money in the bank account, and you really should think of it as a bank account, uh, to make in, to make all of, let's say, Tuesday's payments, uh, they would make principal and interest payments so that they wouldn't strictly be in default on U.S. Treasuries, uh, because that's a really bad outcome for the you know financial markets. But we'll come back to financial markets in a second. And so what they would do is make those principal and interest payments, but then they would delay all the non-interest payments that they had to make on that Tuesday until they accumulated a lot more money in that, in that checking account. So maybe Tuesday's non-interest payments would get paid on Thursday or Friday or, or the following Monday or maybe the following Thursday because they would always want to make sure that they had enough money to make principal and interest, excuse me, to make principal and interest, but they would uh, then not try to prioritize between one non-interest payment and another non-interest payment, and they would make that whole day's uh, bucket of payments when they accumulated enough money. And the way people would then experience that is that if the federal, if you were expecting a check from the federal government, 
because you had done work for them as a federal contractor, you had been a doctor who treated Medicaid patients. Uh, what's now a lot discussed in the news is if you're a Social Security recipient and you have automatic uh, uh, automatic uh, deposits into your account from the Social Security system that always come on a date certain, those payments would not come as scheduled. And in fact, you wouldn't know when those payments were coming. And when all said and done, what would really happen overall is that in order to make principal and interest payments on time, Treasury would have to cut its other payments that it makes by about a third, maybe even a little over a third. And so this has real consequences, but in terms of people seeing delays in the amount of money that they get from the federal government that they, shock of all shocks, fully expected to get on time. But it's not like when Treasury market, when somebody holding a Treasury security says, well, I got my principal and interest on time, so it's all, it's all good to me. It's not like they don't notice what's happening mm. in these other payments. And I would expect the first day this happens for not just the stock market to fall in a really frightening way, but also disruptions in the financial system that are really frightening. And when those sorts of things happen, you know, firms, including firms in Detroit, say, you know, hey, this week we were going to we were going to get that big we were going to do that big bond issuance and 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 fund that big project. You know what? Let's wait a week and see how this resolves. Let's not do you know what? We were actually going to we were we were going to break ground on on that big building. You know what? Let's 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 wait. Hey, you know, we were going to we were going to post those thousand jobs. Uh, to to add another shift, you know, let's wait. And all that stuff has cascading effects. And so I think we would see pretty quick uh, economic effects, not just from the financial system, but from a loss of confidence. Yeah. You know, you talk about the financial market impact, but what I'm also hearing from you is if you're someone who contracts with the government, a doctor or just a a standard worker, and you're not receiving your payment on time, you lose confidence in knowing when you're going to receive your paycheck. You're maybe a little tighter with your wallet, or if you're someone who lives paycheck to paycheck, you're not even able to make that payment. That could have a cascading effect on the economy as well. What type of impact would that have for workers who are far more concerned and have far less flexibility with their budgets if we aren't raising this debt ceiling? Oh, absolutely. And 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 you know where this is where this is possibly going to show up most quickly is not necessarily for federal workers uh, or federal contractors, but for Social Security recipients and other recipients yeah. who have organized their lives around these automatic deposits coming into their account on exact days over the course of the month. And like they, you know, they may be quite dependent on that money coming in and, and rightly so. Why wouldn't they expect the federal government to make good? Um, and so we're talking about that money not coming into their account. And then, you know, the landlord comes and says, I want, you know, it's the fifth of the month. I want my I want my rent, right. and the what the landlord's just going to say, no problem. You wait <laughs> until the federal government decides to pay you. Right. Such a cascading effect these decisions have on all of us. As we move back to the phones right now, Raj in Ypsilanti. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Raj, are you there? It's Detroit today. One zero one nine WDT. Yes. Go ahead, Raj. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Yeah. Hi. I. Just zooming out, um, just wanted to understand when we issue, say, more debt, when you, when you take more debt by raising a debt ceiling, who who all will own the debt, right? Who Who is the Treasury borrowing from? Is it just the Federal Reserve or is it anyone who borrows the, the securities? And the second part is, do we, do we pay more in interest on those? Um, than what we are growing at, which means maybe the GDP is growing at a lesser pace than what we are paying out on that uh, loan. And is that the case, and should it be a case? Go ahead, Wendy. Oh, so many good questions there. So, um, Treasury Securities, that's a really big market, um, and uh, foreign investors and sovereign funds in foreign countries own about a quarter of U.S. debt. 
which is to say that about 75% of U.S. debt is held uh, domestically. And uh, it's going to be held by, you know, investors. It's going to be held by big financial institutions. But we all probably are, you know, nearly all of the listeners probably own U.S. treasuries directly or indirectly, even if they don't know it. So if you've deposited money in a bank account and your bank is paying you interest, you know, it might be really low interest, but nonetheless, uh, the way the bank is, one of the ways that the bank is making money to be able to pay you a little bit of interest on your deposit is they're investing your money. And one of the most basic places that the bank is, is investing that money is in treasuries. Um, and for sure, if you have a 401k, if, you know, if you're, if, if you work for a, for a firm that has promised you a pension, uh, you know, they've had to save money and that's probably invested in us treasuries. So, uh, Ownership of treasuries is is far and wide. Um, and, you know, US, the, the interest rate on U.S. treasuries has been coming down for decades. It, it has certainly come up, than, you know, in the past couple of years. Um, and uh, it, it's absolutely right that economists watching this market pay very close attention to interest rates on treasuries relative to the growth rate in the economy because we're trying to see you know, how stable things are going forward and, you know, whether or not fiscal policy, if it, if it were just set on basically autopilot, would, would have ramifications going forward. Um, but the reason that I think we should set that aside is because that's about the future. Those are hard questions. I have lots of ideas for future fiscal policy, mm. uh, you know, if, if, I get to, if I get to hold the magic wand. But what the current conversation about is about is not what we should do about the future. It's about, do we pay the bills that we've already incurred? Right. And that's the big issue that uh, I think a lot of us are having here right now, Wendy, is that uh, the, we know the Republicans control Congress. Republicans in Congress have the strength, the power, the majority of Congress is all is needed to raise the debt limit. And we know that there's well, they a, hold the House, well, so the House yeah. right, right. And we know also that there's a contingent that you mentioned in the House that is just against it, seems to maybe want to go off the cliff. So with polarization like that happening, where you just have such a group, um, first of all, do Republicans without that set that you mentioned have enough that they could just get it done if they got off of this uh, desire to deal some deal with future spending? Do they have the votes without that contingent that wants to go off the cliff? Could they bring in de- Democrats? What is a solution that could get us out of this, first of all? Can we do it just through Congress or the House of well, Repub- so the, the, House, I should say? Go ahead. You know, so I'm not I this is, you know, at the at the edge of my expertise, right. because this is this is really about the politics of it all. But the fundamental issue here is um, is the way the House Republicans have organized themselves around around Speaker McCarthy's leadership. And he essentially needs to keep, you know, the support of nearly all the Republicans in Congress to keep his speakership. And yeah. so uh, it is, you know, widely assumed, I've certainly said out loud and not been told that I'm wrong, that if McCarthy said, you know what, I'm going to ignore the part of my, the, you know, the, the Republicans in the House who actually really want to uh, let the debt ceiling bind or, you know, and, and I should say they have voted for and passed in the House um, a bill that would have pretty draconian cuts and in return uh, postpone the debt ceiling basically put off this day of reckoning for about a year. So they, they are on record with, with at least something that raises the debt ceiling. Um, but, uh, it, but that's, it's very, very far yeah. from what the Democrats would, would accept. Uh, the, common, the common thinking is that if McCarthy were to say, you know what, let's just raise the debt ceiling, he would lose his speakership. Right. And so with that concern, there may be other ways out of this that McCarthy probably doesn't even want to admit to. So let's get back to the economics of this. One of the things that you mentioned earlier in the show was how the debt ceiling may be in conflict with other aspects of what's required for spending and making sure we pay our debts. But you mentioned that the Constitution requires America to pay off of all of its debts, one of the reasons we're in this situation. It would seem then conflict of law 
laws, you're not a lawyer, that maybe that could control. And I know people have talk, talked about other potential options for uh, getting rid yep. of this problem. The one trillion dollar coin, for yeah. example, and all of these uh, high minded ideas. Yep. What are solutions that could be out there? Because even the Biden administration has signaled maybe they're looking at some other things. Uh, what are other solutions out there that you're aware of, have thought of that maybe could sidestep Congress and get this issue resolved? There are a bunch of workarounds, and it's great fun as an economist to think through those workarounds and how they can be made to work and, you know, the trillion dollar coin and how would the Fed, you know, the Fed has straightforward ways of keeping inflation, you know, without like keeping that money from from going into the economy and in worrying ways. Like all these workarounds are really fun to talk about, but but let's talk about but they won't work. Mm. And here's why. Let's talk about. Uh, the simplest one, um, because they all basically have this kind of problem. Let's talk about the simplest one where Treasury says, you know what, the Constitution tells us we have to pay our bills. And so we're going to ignore the debt ceiling and we're going to issue new Treasury securities to raise the amount of federal debt out there. We've just, we're just going to decide that we can do that and let them sue. Okay, well, first of all, they will sue. Right. Uh, but second of all, Who's going to buy those Treasury securities uh, in in those days when there are lawsuits raging and there are lots of people out there saying Treasury U.S. the U.S. Treasury is illegally issuing Treasury securities that it has no standing to issue? Like that's that is not going to calm financial markets. Mm-hmm. That's going to massively confuse financial markets. And then is the idea that the U.S. Treasury is just supposed to ignore the debt ceiling forevermore while uh, some parts of Congress continue to say forevermore that the U.S. Treasury is doing something illegal? Um, And as this works its way through the courts, like this is not a sustainable, stable solution. So. I'm actually, it's, it's my view that if Treasury, if the U.S. Treasury were to do this and just go out there and say, we're, you know, we're off the reservation and we are, uh, we are going to issue U.S. Treasury securities, even though there's going to be a whole lot of people in America who think that it's illegal for us to be doing this. Um, my, I, my intuition is that would have the exact same effect on financial markets. Uh, and the economy more broadly, as if Treasury, the U.S. Treasury made principal and interest payments and just postponed payments to federal workers, Social Security beneficiaries, doctors and hospitals, and the like. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the solution to the problem is solving the problem. The problem is the problem. Right. And the workarounds uh, just create chaos in a different, it's just, it's just a different flavor of chaos. You know, Wendy, I know I have to let you go, and I'm going to, but it's interesting that you said that because so much of this seems psychological. We're talking about what markets are going to do. So it's assuaging these markets' concern, and we're coming up on an election. So theoretically, if you could just get over to that next election and maybe get some more sensible people in the, in, uh, the House of Representatives that could uh, fix this issue, uh, that would be sufficient. But it's a very risky way of going. I guess the concern here is just allaying the psychological concerns of the market. Uh, and the best way to do that would be raising the debt ceiling. Yes, but just just to to to, to make people understand that this isn't like a this isn't like a you know a psychological reaction that like people can't relate to. Right. Um, you know anybody out there who's listening who earns a wage and gets paid on time by an employer. I want you to imagine your employer saying to you, not only am I not paying you when I said I would, not sure when I will pay you. Mm. Wouldn't you have a different feeling about your employer if that happened? Like, it's not this reaction, you know, we're talking about financial markets and like it's confusing to think about what that would be, what, what that means. But like, that's a pretty human reaction that we're just talking that I that I think I just described. I think you did too, Wendy, and I guess we're going to have to end it there. But I thank you so much, Wendy Edelberg, Director of the Hamilton Project, Senior Fellow of Economic Studies at the Brickings Institute. Always a pleasure to speak with you.
Excellent. Good to talk to you, too. When we return here on Detroit Today, a new bill involving distracted driving has finally passed through the Michigan Senate. But will it make its way to the governor's desk? And what will that mean for all of us here? We're going to speak with Colin Jackson, Capitol reporter of the Michigan Public Radio Network, when we return on Detroit Today. Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, where I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, who will be back with you on Monday. But if you're like me, you understand that we've all done it. We're at the car in the, at a stoplight. We pull out our phone, say, just a quick text. And we think to ourselves, hey, before putting it away, this is the only time. I'm not going to make a habit of this. But how many times? Has that phone come out for multiple quick texts during your journey? We know that using our phone on the road isn't so innocent. We know that it could be potentially putting many other drivers and pedestrians in danger. But what should be done about this? Do these kind of actions warrant policymaking so that people can be uh, or should people be left to their own devices to make sure they do the right thing? Well, the latter might be happening here in Michigan as legislators want to tighten down on distracted driving and ban holding cell phones while driving. To talk about this, we have Colin Jackson here with us. Colin is a Capitol reporter for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Colin, welcome to Detroit Today. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm not so happy to possibly be admitting to a civil infraction. Got to look up the statute of limitations on that. A little bit later, but uh, let's talk about distracted driving. I understand that a bill has made its way or passed through the Michigan Senate. Tell us where are lawmakers at right now with distract this distracted driving bill? Yeah, so luckily for you, me, and many other uh, Michiganders who have uh, possibly been at fault here. Possibly. Uh, Possibly, exactly. Uh, So three bills have made, in fact, made their way out of the Michigan legislature. Uh, This week, it passed the Senate. uh, And then because the Senate made some changes to it, it had to go back to the House yesterday for what's called a concurrence vote, where basically lawmakers there just agreed to the changes the Senate made. And now it's uh, really up to the governor to decide what to do next. Yeah. And so what exactly, since you said there's some changes in the two bills, uh, can you tell us what both bills look like? I guess what the one in the Senate changed and um, where we're at with that, what we would expect from these bills? Yeah, so this was a three-bill package. Um, it started in the House. Uh, it made it through the House with to make some compromises there um, around some punishments to get uh, some Republican support on board and get those bills through that chamber. And then to make sure that these bills really got immediate effect, something the sponsors had said was they wanted this to go in effect in time for the summer to really make a difference for some of those high traffic, like Fourth of July weekend, Labor Day weekend, et cetera. Um, Republicans had some concerns about exactly when the effective date of this law would be so one of the changes was making sure that these bills are going if they were to be signed by the governor that they would take effect on june 30th and that would give law enforcement residents um etc some time to adjust so they're not just right away getting tickets for some behavior that they thought was okay yesterday mm-hmm. a little bit ingrained in us and i think i mentioned a little earlier what is this uh what specifically does it outlaw we can't have a cell phone in our hand while driving or what is the specific uh, activity that would be prohibited yeah, so broadly, you can't have a cell phone in your hand while driving. So this would apply to texts. This would apply to making video calls. This would apply to just making a phone call and holding your phone if you don't have a Bluetooth speaker in your phone. Um, this applies to if you're at a stoplight and, oh, see the little ding from your phone. Maybe it's in your passenger seat. You can't pick it up anymore and just scroll Facebook or Twitter or whatever you want to do. Now, these are some behaviors that people had already considered dangerous and in certain cases may have a applied under Michigan's current uh, reckless driving laws. But this would more uh, explicitly outlaw these behaviors. Yeah, well, it's a little bit more flat when uh, all you need to do is get caught having the cell phone in your hand. I'm thinking of all the amazing memes and TikToks I've created by just being in the car at a stoplight and seeing. I once saw the uh, the Oscar Mayer Wiener truck uh, driving by. I was like, when am I going to see this again? Made a little TikTok out there. Got about 10 likes on it. I felt like I was really popular. You're telling me now that that behavior would be outlawed, Colin? 
That is exactly what I'm telling you. Mm. No, I'm thinking of all the times I've been at a long stoplight or stopped at a train stop or something and thought, you know what, let me get caught up. Let me let people know I'm going to be 5, 15, 30 minutes late because I may have not left my house on time in the first place. <laughs> yeah, all those things will uh, could soon be illegal if the governor decides to scroll this. Um, One of the exceptions would be for calling 911. So Fair. let's say you're driving past the freeway or driving past an accident on the freeway and you see all of a sudden a car's on fire. You can still dial 911. That would be allowed under these bills. Well, that is good. And I think the uh, 911 would not want video of the Oscar Mayer Wiener hot dog mobile on the road. So I wouldn't be able to do that in the future. But what are the consequences for people who are caught uh, with their cell phone out while driving if this bill were to pass? So for the first infraction for your everyday drivers, it would be a $100 fine or 16 hours of community service. Um, if you get caught again, uh, it would be a $250 fine for every subsequent violation or possibly 25 hours of community service. Uh, if you get caught more than three times within a three-year period, you would have to take a driver's ed class again, basically, to make sure that you learn, you understand safe driving behaviors. Yeah, that's... Um, if you're yeah, exactly. And then there's some extra penalties too. Um, if you're a commercial license holder or if you're a school bus driver, for example, um, and that's when possible license suspensions can come into play. We're talking with Callan Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network, but we also want to speak with you here on the show. What do you make of a distracted driver law? Do you think that lawmakers do need to crack down like this? Do you want this bill to pass? Or do you think it's something that the government should not be involved with? Do you think we should be allowed to have the cell phone in our hands while we're driving, while we're at stoplights? What do you think of this law? Do you think it's something that needs to pass or do you think it's something that gets in the way? Are you someone who has been known to drive uh, and with a little bit of distracted driving, maybe make a text or uh, create a video while you're driving? Give us a call. 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. We promise not to report you to law enforcement. Uh, Colin, I'm intrigued to know what kind of bi- it has bipartisan support. What is the breakdown between Democrats and Republicans in terms of support for this, these bills? So uh, when these bills passed the Senate uh, earlier this week, they passed, I believe, with seven uh, Republicans. Math isn't my strongest suit. That's why I deal with words. That's fair. Uh, That's fair. I believe it was uh, seven Republicans cross party lines in that chamber. Um, in the House, there was also some bipartisan support. I don't have the exact numbers uh, direct right in front of me. But to give you an idea, there are 56 Democrats um, in the House of Representatives. When these originally passed, they passed with 68 votes. And that's also phasing in the fact that some Democrats did vote against these bills. Um, there were some concerns, um, especially coming from the American Civil Liberties Union. Um, the Michigan Department of Civil Rights earlier on signaled some concerns with one of the specific bills. So this was a little bit of bipartisan support as well as slight bipartisan um, opposition as well um, in the House, at least in the Senate. I believe all Democrats voted for it. You know, it took a while for this to pass because I know it had been going through multiple iterations. What were some of the objections people had to pass bills and even this bill? So with these bills, some of the early concerns dealt with the fact that if you give police unilateral authority to pull anyone over the second they see them holding a phone call, that's going to lead to a lot more police interaction. So there were some concerns that those police interactions uh, would lead to maybe instances of racial profiling. Um, and then also there were concerns about this, the penalties that were in the original versions that um, were going to come up for a vote in the House. Again, it, originally these bills would have led to a license suspension um, if you get caught with three uh, three violations within a three-year period. Um, and some Republicans, as well as some Democrats, thought that was a little bit extreme. Uh, so these bills did have to change a little bit just to get that support there. Yeah. Ed Van S. on Twitter uh, asks, can you use Google Maps under this law? So this is something where if as long as you're not typing in everything by hand um, while driving, GPS is still OK. Um, some of the exceptions for this law would be like hands free mode. So if your car, a lot of technology has advanced now to the point where cars have taken into consideration that people do like their phones and that phones can be helpful while driving. So using like hands free mode to enter in an address or just making single taps, you know, to start a hands free mode on your phone, those things would be OK as well. We go into the phone lines right now, starting off with Phyllis and Warren. Phyllis, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Thank you. Um, uh, I'll tell you, what you're speaking about is not the fault of the phone. It's the fault of the car manufacturers. They have given us living rooms or offices on wheels. We 
can do anything in there. We can play records. We can play the radio. We can play the phone. We can do just about anything in the car. And that's a danger. We don't think driving is a serious business, and this is only adding to the situation. The police shouldn't be involved in this anyhow. It shouldn't be a law that they have to enforce. And I think that what we need to do is get some kind of responsibility in the hands, and I know I'm chastising you, but get the responsibility in the hands of the telephone, cell phone, whatever you want to call it, computer owner, and make them realize this is dangerous. You're taking a couple thousand pounds of material, and you're driving at high speeds, and you're driving through where people are and other cars are and everything else. Why? Why are you doing it irresponsibly? Do it very responsibly. Well, you know, Phyllis, I hope that I do it responsibly, but I will admit that sometimes we all need a little bit of admonishment. I will take my medicine as well, as we're all trying to get better out here, and I thank you for your call and insight there as we move to Mike in Detroit. Mike, go ahead. You're on Detroit Today. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call, naturally, and uh, I've got an old car. It's a, it's a, it's a 12-year-old uh, Mazda 3, and when I get in my car, as soon as I turn on my ignition, my cell phone uh, automatically connects with my uh, with my in-car sound system, so I can be driving down the road, both hands on the wheel, looking straight ahead, and talking on my cell phone simultaneously. Uh, where does that fall in this in this scheme of, of enforcement, among other things? Good question, Mike. Sounds like it'd be okay to me, but Colin, you've been following this. Would hands-free mode through a Bluetooth connection be all right under this new law? Yep, exactly. So the hands-free mode, that's something that lawmakers want to encourage you using if your car has it. Um, if if you're able to talk to text, for example, through your phone or say, hey, phone or hey, Google, call Nick, those would be things that would be okay. Yeah, and you should be saying, hey, Google, call Nick, because I love receiving your phone calls. 313-577-1019 is the best way to get a hold of me. We've got Mike on Twitter who says that uh, absolutely we should be uh, legislating and protecting people from distracted driving. He says, most days, 20 to 40 percent of drivers I pass are holding their phones while driving. Just like outlawing drinking and driving and requiring seatbelts, we need to make traffic laws that save lives. Thanks, Mike, on Twitter for your insight there. We've got open phone lines for you. If you're listening, you can join us as I'm speaking with Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network. Give us a call. What do you think of distracted driving in the new legislation that's pending and could be passed by the governor? 313-577-1019. Again, 313-577-1019. We might be able to slide you in before the end of this uh, conversation. You know, it's really interesting hearing all of the folks talk about distracted driving. Uh, One of the things that uh, legislators can help uh, do in Michigan, pass laws that really have effects on our lives. But Colin, I know that there are other things that they're thinking about in Michigan. Uh, What are lawmakers doing? Where are they at on the budget? And also, are there other priorities that they're looking at handling right now? Yeah, so this was a really big week for the budget in the Michigan legislature. Um, This was the point when we really got to see the original House and Senate proposals come to the floor for votes um, for each of the individual state departments. Those came up and were passed uh, this week. And then from there, next week, we should see the May Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference. So that's the moment when really kind of the House, the Senate, and the governor's um, budget-making teams all come together and really determine how much money the state actually has to play with. And then from there, we should see a little more action as the Senate goes through the House budget proposals, the House goes through the Senate budget proposals. And in the coming weeks, we can expect to see continued committee hearings on these things, um, some behind the scenes conversations as well. And then eventually this will likely culminate in all three um, parties, the Senate, the House, and the governor's office coming together and working out some sort of deal that's agreeable to everyone. And that deal uh, will be the Michigan's next budget. So that's kind of where things stand with that. Um, and there are some other prior that are coming up uh, here and there that we should expect to see working on as well. Very good. We're going to sneak one more in right now. Franklin, or actually this is Joe in Detroit. Go ahead. You're on Detroit today. Hi. Hey, go ahead. Got a- uh, Yeah, I'm wondering. I hope I'm not changing, getting off the subject. No, no, go ahead. I'm going back to the uh, 
distracted driving situation. Yep. And I'm wondering, uh, should I get a call uh, while I'm driving? Can I pull over and respond um, without, you know, yeah. being considered such? Yeah, yeah. It's a good question. Is it okay to pull over and be stationary on the side of the road? How does that work in the current legislation, Colin? So for pulling over to be stationary on the side of the road, I don't want to give you the exact uh, <laughs> right. wrong information there. Um, at st- things like stoplights, um, where previously if the car wasn't moving, it was okay. Those would be illegal now. But if you're on the side of the road, um, parked uh, or like in a parking lot, for example, I believe that would be different. But I don't want to give you bad advice right. over the phone. Right. We got one more call, and thanks, Joe in Detroit. We want to sneak you in here, Franklin or Darren and Franklin, because this is a really good question. You got about thirty seconds. Go ahead, Darren. I was just uh, wondering how this will play into uh, the new technologies of autonomous driving. Hey, that's a good question. Colin, have they factored in autonomous vehicles when it comes to this new law? Yeah, there are some uh, exam- There are some exceptions here and mentions of autonomous driving here. I think the lawmakers' main intent was people specifically holding their phones while driving. Yeah. Um, if your phone's mounted, um, for example, like security cameras, et cetera, or technology made to be used with phone- with cars, um, that would be a little bit different. Yeah, the global thing that I'm hearing here, Colin, is basically get the phone out your hand, man. Two- if you have two hands, if you can't do it with two hands on the steering wheel, you can't do it under this law, I think might be the simplest way to put it. And that's going to do it for us here. Colin Jackson of the Michigan Public Radio Network, thanks for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. And if you enjoyed the conversation, make sure you tell a friend. It really helps us out. You can check out the podcast or go online at WDET.org and listen to past episodes. Stephen Henderson will be back in the big chair on Monday, and we'll see you again on Detroit Today when we return on Monday.